Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Arnold Bakus. Arnold is a coach. Today, we're going to look at this critically important question of why are you trying to live the life that other people expect of you? We're going to go through a process of trying to uncover the symptoms of recognizing when you're giving up your choice and conforming. We're going to look at the disconnect between mind, heart, gut. We're going to um, look at the terrible symptom that we see, which is that people tend to look for um, a relief, not a cure from their frustrations and their pain. And so we're then going to look at blind spots. We're going to look at the questions you should be asking yourself that perhaps you're not and why you might be suppressing your critical thinking. So, Arnold, without any further ado, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. Would you mind giving the audience a couple of minutes on your history, please, to explain why you're here today and how you got here? Yes, thank you. I first started uh, in in the corporate environment where I mainly worked on innovation and and partly on and and because I had leadership position, coaching was also part of it. I worked mainly in in yeah in in technology environments where we introduced totally new technologies in the market. That was the first part of, of, of my career and the last part of the career. I still was involved in leadership, but more personal leadership. I also worked on, on especially on psychology, coaching, everything where the human uh, part is more driving. And at the same time, I also st- have started a couple of startups. Okay. So... Tell me this, why is it that we seem to spend a large proportion of our lives trying to live lives that we've inherited, borrowed, or had imposed upon us? That's because it really starts that I call it conditioning. It already starts the moment you're born. The moment you're born, you're immediately influenced by your parents and the people in your environment. So when are you a good baby? When are you a good kid? When you do what your parents tell you what to do. Then you, later on, a little bit later, you go to school. Yeah, when are you a good kid? When you do what the teacher tells you to do. Then you get some education. Yeah, You get it from your professor or your teacher. You do exactly what they tell you to do. Then you start to work and you're supposed to do exactly what your boss tells you to do. So by the time you're around 25 years old, the only thing... What you've been taught and the only thing what you know is that you're supposed to do what other people tell you to do. And those beginning of, well, especially the younger years, obviously, but of that 25 years is extremely formative for the rest of your life. No question. I mean, the first six is where the brain is effectively recording life scripts that you've inherited. And then those are being confirmed either because of your experience or because your filter tells you that it has to be so. So whatever the evidence, you'll find a way to uh, prove um, that your conditioning is true and correct. So how do we recognize this? Because I have a thesis that free will is a myth, except in the moments where we realize we have none, and only then can we make a choice. I totally agree. (laughs) The the symptoms are is, is that 
I also was in that situation is that you, you're totally reactive. So when someone asks you what to do or tells you what to do or whatever, you react. So I think most of us know the expression is like, I don't want you to think, I want you to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that from a very young age, we're, we're taught to react only yeah, and say nothing when we're not asked a question, we're supposed to keep our mouth shut. So okay, so I need to come back to something because it's um, just sparked a really important thought. As an innovation leader, how did that suppression of critical thinking and how did that willingness to comply limit the organizations that you worked in's capability to innovate and stay competitive? Oh, totally. Because the name innovation only started last five, six years or whatever. I've been doing that for, well, almost 30 years. But before that, it never was called innovation. It, but still, companies and organizations were like developing new products, new services, new business models, new everything. But now they start to call things innovation, which basically is just an improvement. If you have a car and now you have the uh, a light in your side mirror, mm-hmm. huh? Where which which clicks which direction you go? Well, you can call that an innovation. I think it's just an improvement. It's got nothing to do with innovation. Yeah. So, can you define what you mean by innovation? For me, innovation is is totally come up with new connections between things where you where you really offer a solution for something which is not working or not working properly, or in the future is not going to work. Okay, so when you're putting those innovation and product development teams together, talk to me about how you hire those people and recruit the the right people onto an innovation team. How diverse does it have to be? Well, it's got to be pretty diverse, because if you only get people who just copy others, then then you only need one or two because then the rest will say the same thing. Yeah, so, but it's it's also critical that you have people who have courage and the courage to speak up and the courage to go against the grain and the courage to disagree and the courage to dissent. Those are, are critical things. And what kind of conditions did you create in order to give them the psychological safety so they knew they could do that without being punished? By expecting them to speak up as the norm, rather than the opposite where I had to drag it out of them. It's like, I would, I would blame them, I would tell them that they were wrong when they were just saying what they're expected to say. Okay. Okay, so help me understand this then. Innovation to me sounds like disruption, and it it seems to require three types of thinking. Convergent thinking, where like-minded people come together, but the danger of that is that you'll get confirmation bias and you'll live in an echo chamber. Then divergent thinking, where you come up against people who disagree with you and you disagree with them, but you enter into discourse and together, you can then synthesize, and that's the third type of thinking which you are describing there, which is creating something new by putting together the different components in a new and innovative way 
that means that you now have a better solution combined than you did individually. I couldn't agree more. I would like to add another aspect which you implicitly indicate already is the what I call for any innovation, it's crucial to connect the dots, to see an interconnectedness between yeah. them. The connections matter. It's not the components themselves that are particularly interesting because as you go through change or transformation, you have to make a leap across this sort of chasm of chaos. And in there are lots of different components. But in the safe zone where it's all familiar, you understand how they interconnect. In the chaos, you don't. And I think that's part of the joy of bringing together an innovation team. It's trying to work out where the interconnectivity is and uh, thinking about the downstream consequences of the decision as well. Now, you're seeing it at the moment with big tech uh, leaders all talking about having to uh, stop further research into AI until we understand what it's capable of doing. I was listening to the guys who did the social dilemma over the weekend, and the AI is now capable of reading an fMRI scan of a brain and telling you what was going on in that person's brain at that moment with alarming accuracy. I mean, it's breathtaking. Absolutely. But we don't know what, you know, once the genie's out the bottle, then the, the, the challenge is that, you know, two years down the road, they discovered that it had learned how to do advanced re chemistry research on its own. Yeah, absolutely. That's why one of the key things that people really need to understand and keep themselves up to date, which they are not, by the way, is to understand what's happening in, in from a technology point of view. If you don't, you are going to be left behind. We had 2,000, 3,000 years to catch up with the agricultural revolution, a couple of hundred for the industrial revolution, about 20 for the internet. And this we've got, it's literally a matter of months. I reckon that if in the next four or five months, salespeople have not mastered the use of this kind of technology, they're going to become effectively irrelevant because other people who have that kind of technology will be able to do so much more, so much better, so much faster and effectively instead of just um, you know, focusing on efficiency, which is where everybody seems to have conformed. And the net result is that we've overemphasized the financial We've overemphasized the easy measurement and we've forgotten the people. Absolutely. But that's because we are living in a monetization driven society. And what I'm trying to contribute on my uh, very small scale is to move towards a well being driven society. I don't see any reason why you can't have both, though. Maybe I'm just naively optimistic. But if you find a balance and you recognize that there is enough. The problem is the rapacious greed, I think, more than anything else, because it's, it's all about you know, growth at any cost, revenue at any cost. It's about control, power. But mostly it seems to be driven out of fear. Well, fear is the tool. Fear, fear is used as a tool to make you buy things, do things, behave in a certain way so that other people make money. A client of mine, Steve Barnett, described the general populace as a cash crop uh, when we were talking about tax. And it feels very much the same here. 
people using fear as a tool to make uh, so they make money off the back of your fears. So what do we need to do to realign our brain and reset our brain so that we're, we stop triggering this freeze, flight or fight response in the way we, we react to circumstance and context? Everything starts with awareness. Hmm? And the, the awareness is that, that you understand that you have or are really, really living someone else's life. The moment you start to realize that, well, I'm not living my own life. I'm living the life of my father. I'm living the life of my boss. I'm living the life of my spouse. You start to ask these questions like we started essential questions in life. It's like, who am I? What do I want? all of the basic coaching questions, which are still to this very day, key questions. And I can still recall when my coach, my first coach asked me that question and I'm verbally quite competent, but I have no clue because he was the first one ever asking me that question. I was in my forties, Marcus. So nobody had ever, ever asked me that question. And as you look back, what did that moment give you? It gave me my life because before that, again, by living someone else's life, I was a robot. I was not myself, but I didn't realize it. So I have the feeling that, well, you can kind of call it the rebirth or something like that, but it's like my life started kind of at 40 and before 40, I was I was doing what people expected me of uh, what to do, and I was rather good at that. Okay. And when you stopped doing what was expected of you, presumably people around you recognized that. What was their response? Like with any change or disruption, is there's a group of people who don't like that and who find it frightening because you, by doing so, you are a mirror to them. And a mirror to them in the sense that, oh, that guy's doing something which I don't want to do. So you lose those people. But there are other people who are like, well, you really improved a lot and you changed a lot. And, well, actually, you're a nice guy now. <laughs> <laughs> Where before I, I was just bam, bam, bam. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't care as long as we get the result. Yeah? It's interesting because there's a clear drive in most businesses to focus on systems and process. And that stuff is critically important. The problem is when you overemphasize it, any part of that the, uh, business, then um, the other moving parts then don't get the oxygen that they need and they don't get the attention that they need. And I see this in so many organizations where they're very financially focused, very data-driven, very technology-driven. But at the end of the day, the work typically gets done by human beings, is bought by human beings, is managed and created by human beings. And whilst the technology is incredibly clever, the relationship seems to have become very secondary, almost forgotten, an afterthought. How do we rekindle that on a micro level, on a day-to-day -day basis, so that we can just start making small change in our lives and create that change in others. 
I totally agree and uh, with what you're saying about business totally. It's not only business, it's also healthcare. It's it's all industry where yeah. we focused on the, the mechanical point of view. We are corks in a machine and, and there's only parts and we don't look at, at the whole. And that is creating so much pain and that's at the same time creating so much failures. And whether it's in politics, in, in healthcare, or or in any other industry, is if, if you don't look at the whole and look at just mechanical individual parts, then you're not going to solve any critical problems. So coming back to your question, like where does it start? It starts with ourselves. Because we, I, also at develop is like, I also looked at myself like a mechanical person. And I, I was like the... What is being said to me is like I copied that, and that was my self-talk. Let me let me give an example. My my father always said to me, he never gave me a compliment, and he always said to me something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid and my grade at school was not so good, I hardly had the guts to go come home. But then I was beating myself up already before my father would do it. <laughs> So my self-talk became his talk. Hmm? And that's what people are doing. It's, it's like, oh, no, no, then my boss is going to say this, and then they're going to say this. So we we copy that, that talk from others towards ourselves. So the first change which we need to make is to, to start being a little bit kinder to ourselves. So that inner voice, and a a quote from Mark Twain comes to mind. He says, anger is the acid that etches the vessel that contains it. And I think a lot of fear often then leads to anger and resentment and not taking responsibility. It's important that we stress that the decisions that people make are choices. When you abdicate responsibility and you say, you made me angry, you made me do it, it was a choice. It's still no defense. I was only following orders. And we have to take more personal ownership. When your coach asked you that question, that was your turning point, your watershed moment, what were the responsibilities that came with it? (laughs) Actually, it it felt very naked because I started realizing that a lot of that stuff was not really my choice and that I had to define in basically any life area is like, how do I want it rather than what other people wanted? Yeah, that goes from the work I want, the house I want, the relationships, the the hobbies, everything is like, Okay, am I doing what I'm supposed to do or what other people do? Or but what do I really want? And a lot of these things were blank because, well, I wouldn't say that I had become lazy, but it it it's like this rebirth is like, no, wow, now I have to create these things for myself. Whereas other people, I just had to react. If you just have to react, it's kind of a lazy approach. Mm-hmm. It's just like what people are now doing when they criticize everything, yeah, on social media, whatever, criticizing things, whatever. But criticizing is easy instead of saying, how would you do it? And again, 
it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of reacting. And I think context is very important as well. As part of your self-reflection, I would strongly advise you to recognize the moments and the context in which you are triggered to react instead of respond. Because you'll very often find that there are certain uh, situations or certain people or the way they speak in a particular tone that acts as a trigger. And your need for self-awareness is because attachment is the root to all misery. Uh, The Buddha was right. When you're attached to the outcome, when you're attached to seeing things in a particular way or being treated in a particular way, or you're driving to a particular outcome, and you're putting that first, you're not letting the other person have their voice. You're trying to drive them, force them, pressure them. And people don't respond well to that. So as a manager, as a leader, as a coach, how do you manage to control the urge to rescue people and help them without boundaries, without permission, and you know, avoid conflict? How, how do you prevent that? How do I prevent conflict? Now, how do you prevent yourself from soft peddling, from rescuing? Because you can see they're in trouble and the temptation is to jump in because you know what they need to do. I cannot change other people. I can only enable them to change by asking the right questions. And sometimes people just want to avoid the questions or think that I'm crazy. And those are typically people who are fine in the situation which they are in at the moment. But the main thing is, I ask the question is, what do you feel? And where do you feel something? And that's something. Right, so physiologically where they feel it. Sort of. Their body. Yeah, yeah. But so I ask people is describe what you feel. Where do you feel it? What does it do with you? So go to those feelings, those emotions. What, what emotion pops up? So... Everything by this mechanical approach means that we totally have ignored, neglected, not paid attention, suppressed emotions. So that's what I was doing. That's what I've been doing. It's like I was so good in suppressing emotions, I didn't even know I was an emotional guy. It appears to be that I'm, I'm highly sensitive, but I was so proficient in suppressing it that I thought it wasn't there. And that's what I noticed with many, many people, we constantly, and especially male, but obviously it's also with female, it already starts as a kid. Boys don't cry. So from a very young age, you're taught to suppress your emotion. So what I ask people is connect with those emotions, connect with those feelings. That's quite a scary place for people to go when they've been used to being very data-driven, outcome-driven, results-focused, and they've got targets over their head. How do they learn to find balance and be able to do both? Because they've still got to deliver the results or they get fired, but or they can choose to go somewhere else. I mean, there, there is that possibility. Um, but I, I see so many people having to compromise their values in order to achieve what they want financially or materially, but it seems to burn them up inside. Actually, the, the, just a few days ago, I, I, I read an, uh, 
uh, a survey which was done by Microsoft about the workplace, and it it was an article uh, from their chief people officer, strange name, okay, but they're the highest ranking uh, person in uh, in HR, and that studies that on on average or there were let me have a look at it. They said there was a survey twenty thousand workers and. 48% of employees and 53% of managers report that they burned out at work. That's half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's another thing. So that that was bear from, in mind. That's an organization. That's an organization with massive support and infrastructure. Imagine what it's like for people who don't have that and they're trying to uh, juggle flaming knives all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in the same uh, sentence, there's there's the organization called Gallup, which yes. says that seven in ten people globally are grappling with their mental health. Wow. Seven in ten. That's terrifying. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, sixty percent of managers in sales have some condition that may well be health threatening. That is a mental condition brought upon by stress and. The number of people that I've had on the podcast who've had uh, you know, intestinal bleeds off the level of stress and blackouts and faints and you know, uh, being just com- completely blown out of the water or descending into some form of codependence, whether it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, risk-taking, thrill-seeking, gambling, whatever it happens to be, there, there's a tendency to then try and suppress and numb the pain and fill the emptiness. And I think you speak to this in terms of relief in your your process. Talk to me about how one can find cure rather than simply numb the pain. Well, look to the cause of things. What is the cause of you feeling in a certain way? What you described is, is, is if you are at a workplace where your values are not being valued, that's terrible. Well, ask yourself, is that, hey, is that how I want to live my life? Is that how I want to look back at my life is like I obstructed my values just to make money? The argument there would be, well, I needed to survive. I had to pay the mortgage, had to feed the kids, clothing. But there are other ways to survive. So all people is like, again, that's that conditioning is like you need a big house and you need a bigger house, and you need a car, and a bigger car, and 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 you need a holiday, and 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 another holiday, and it need to be to the tropics or whatever. Everything is like, yeah, you're in the red race, and the red race is only like, how do I make my, more money so I I can do all of the stuff to escape the shit which I have to deal with on a daily basis. So there's this spiral of violence that we seem to uh, commit on ourselves. And there's a pattern of self-destructive self-sabotage. We often will recognize that what we're doing is hurting us, but we continue to do it. How do we break that pattern? There are two ways that it can be done. One is that you start realizing it yourself, which doesn't happen a lot. Or the other way is that the pain becomes so big that you can no longer avoid it. Or another one is that someone says something to you and make you realize like, oh, I need to look at this seriously. For me, just a simple example, 
a long time ago, I uh, I stayed with a friend. He, he had an apartment in Puerto Rico, and I stayed there. And it was like my holiday, and I was like, um, oh, it's lunchtime. Oh, let's have that and a glass of beer. And then in the evening, he's like, okay, let's have some wine. That's what I was used to. And he asked me at some point in time, he's like, Arnold, do you realize that you drink a lot of alcohol? Nobody ever said it to me because it is normal. You're on holiday, so it's okay to drink alcohol, yeah? By the way, that's what I did not, well, I was not on holiday, the same thing. So that's when I was like, holy moly, I do drink a lot of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And if I continue like this, it's very likely that I will become addicted. So actually, I just finished my wine, which I had in my house. And then since then, I haven't drank a drop anymore. Mm. But that's pain. That's pain. And at the same time, it's like, oh, I, d I don't want to become an AA or whatever. So it's like, unfortunately, I was able to. I didn't even know how, if I would stop drinking, whether I would be shaking or doing or, or, or all of those things. So... It's pain. It's sometimes someone else tells you something or asks you a question or whatever. That can also trigger the thing. It can be an outside thing. It can be an inside thing. But the main thing is if you are doing a lot to numb you down, whether it's you all the time, you need to go out for parties in the weekend, you 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 slick all kinds or you take all kinds of medicine, you you, you you're drinking you're, you're well you're shopping all the time you're buying stuff you don't need whatever if you start to realize that what you're doing is is to numb yourself down then those could be signals is like maybe I need to change something okay so how do they connect their brain and their body um, because it sounds like that's a significant blind spot that people will have. Yeah, well, that blind spot is actually in in most healthcare professionals also have that thing is like yeah, is literally uh, yeah, your your brain stops at your neck, <laughs> whereas it's already been proven your your heart has a brain and your gut also has a brain, so at least we have three brains. But you need to realize that your brain influences your body and your body influences your brain, so it's just one. And it's incredible how, how it works, but that is a thing which you need to realize. So you, you just, uh, Marcus, you, you mentioned that a lot of your sales folks, they had stress and that created uh, some bleeding in the thing. That is a typical example of something stress, mental, emotional, which we connect with being in the head, but it gives you a physical problem. In your, in your stomach, in your ulcer, in, in, in whatever. So those are already proof that those things are connected and it's not that there's a big border called your neck. Okay. So talk to me about the heart brain because I've not heard that before. Yeah, there's actually uh, quite a lot of research around it that 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 you're, um, well, there, there are also neurons and signs that your heart is also a brain and brain activities and uh, a very nice one is is a metaphor which is an indian fable about uh, two beggars who 
um, were by day they're begging in a town and in the night they live in a forest and then all of a sudden the forest catches fire and they have to run away. But one of those beggars is blind and the other one has no legs. Right. So one doesn't know which direction to go out of the forest and the other one has no legs so he cannot get out. Mm-hmm. So even though they don't like each other, they need each other. So what the the person with the uh, who who has no legs is symbolizing your heart brain, mm-hmm. and the other one who who uh, who is blind but still can run symbolizes your head or your brain. Mm-hmm. So what is needed is that the person who has no legs sits on top on the shoulders of the person who can run but is blind. Mm-hmm. So what this fable says is that you really need to listen to your heart because your heart gives the direction and your your head can make you run to, towards that. It can create the movement. But if there's no direction, you will run in any direction and it might even kill you if you run towards the fire. Right. Okay. So if we wanted to build up this heart intelligence, if you like, then what advice would you give for someone who wanted to create the conditions where they could consistently allow that side of their thinking to govern their actions instead of being reactive? I would say any decision or any situation, just give yourself a little break and say, what do I feel? What does my heart say? What does my heart know what is right? I literally have it as an action on my to-do list. What, what do you have as an action? My, the action is like, am I recognizing what I feel now? Ah, that's a good question. Okay. How does having structure and systems and a plan help somebody to calm their emotional reaction and have some direction? Because it strikes me that if you want to tap into that heart intelligence, creating the conditions where the unnecessary uncertainty because of lack of organization, uh, lack of preparation is removed. That seems to me to be a good first step as well. Having a plan, having some direction. But any change, any disruption requires also action. And action requires discipline and discipline requires that 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 you follow consistently a couple of steps mm-hmm. yeah yep and let's take a simple example is is like do some exercise preferably daily and then people always say no i'm not doing it or i have no time or whatever but well i go walking every morning at 6 30 i walk for half an hour anybody can do that so that's your plan because the walking is not only good for me physically, it also creates space in my brain it, because you have you have been sleeping. So there's a lot of learning and processing actually in your sleep. That's very critical. Yeah? So when you walk early in the morning, that gives you, well, gives them space and realization and ideas. I always, when I go back from walking, I get 25 ideas yeah, and, and, and whatever. So it's physically good. It's mentally good. It's emotionally good. 
but you have to do it. And then people ask me, are you doing that every day? Yes, I'm doing that every day. But you got to make things simple because when I started with it, well, then I was was running. I'm a sure condition. I cannot run anymore. But it's like, they said, yeah, but are you doing it? I said, then I realized when I started this, it was like, oh, it's raining. I'm not going to run. Oh, it's very hot now. Oh, oh it's very cold. I'm not going to run. No, I, I'm busy. I got to do this or whatever. So I, when I realized it's like half of the time, I got a reason not to do it. So co- commitment so is I doing the thing you said you would. What? So co- commitment is doing the thing you said you would when you don't want to do it. Yeah, but also make the easy make the de- make the decision easy. So instead of because it cost a lot of energy that I had to deliver it, am I going today or not? Can I go? Yeah, so it takes your energy away. But I decided the opposite is like it doesn't matter. I go always. That's the famous story with Steve Jobs and his black turtleneck. Yeah, he, he didn't have to waste any time like looking at his wardrobe. Is like, what, what thing am I going to wear today? Hmm? Ask this question to women. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it costs a lot of energy. Yeah, it's like, what dress, what thing, whatever. But, but, and Steve Jobs said, well, I just wear everybody every day a black turtleneck and that's it. So I don't need to waste my energy on that stuff. So make it easy for yourself. Excellent. Okay. Tell me this. You, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and whisper in the ear of the idiot Arnold, age 23. What one bit of advice would you give him that he would have probably have ignored but would have been useful? Well, number one is that I need to start to live my own life instead of what other people expect me to do. We already discussed that, but that's very critical is, is to ask myself already at that age is what is it that I do want, but I really want, not from a superficial point of view. The second one as advice, I would say, is to understand that people are irrational as opposed to what we say is like, we are human beings, we are rational, we can talk, we can make things and whatever as opposed to whatever plants, animals, anything else, we are totally rational. That's bullocks. We're totally not rational. We're totally irrational. And we use the way of talking to to hide what we really feel and what we really want to do. The third piece of advice I would like to give is consciously check opposing opinions. Check dissenting opposing opinions. That is I'm looking for people who disagree with you. Yeah, but but and and read it and look at it. I think it's a big crisis now in the media landscape. But it's like okay, it's fine that that, that you read the mainstream media, whether it's the Times or New York Times or uh, New Washington Post, whatever, or your local. That's fine. But make sure you also read people who get a totally different opinion. By the way, you can find most of them on Substack now. So it's like read the opposite opinion. Hmm? Or or say that, well, there's one category where people say AI is going to be terrible, it's going to destroy the world or whatever. Well, maybe, and I hope that's the case, there's also a situation where AI can really improve our society. You hope that isn't the case. <laughs> um, definitely with any tool, Marcus, 
any tool can be used for a positive end and for a negative end. Absolutely. I think one of the dangers with this tool, if we're going to get a little bit philosophical about it, is that we've never had an agricultural piece of equipment that can learn how to do industrial chemistry. So we do need to be aware of what's going on and try to act in anticipation. I think this is part of the reason why we need to spend more time in reflection and why we need to speak to people who disagree with us so that we can start to develop more well-rounded solutions. The problem I'm seeing is that society has become very polarized and bad actors have created the conditions where they have capitalized on uh, the first engagement with AI, uh, which was these social media tools that were basically dopamine factories. And uh, the algorithm was trying to work out how to persuade us to stay on longer so they could serve us more adverts. And over time, what seems to have happened is it's forced us to become less discriminatory in terms of our thinking and more discriminatory in terms of our judgment. And I think what we need to do is we need to distinguish between the low left and low right who basically throw sticks at each other and um, accuse you of being either a fascist or a communist um, if you don't agree with them and try and ruin you and the high left and high right, who are willing to reach across the aisle, speak to one another, have discourse, and try to understand one another's position. So you can come up with solutions that everybody can live with, because we have more in common than we have in difference. Yes, in the the end, we all got the same emotions, we we got all the same needs. And so the critical part, again, is, is like, look at all perspectives. One of the reasons I would like to add to what you said is that we have become totally over-specialized. So everything is like we look at it from a very, very small angle, from a very small, the tiniest perspective, which sometimes you need to get to a solution, but things are connected. So you really need to look at the big picture and see how things are connected. If you only look at, at your very, very tiny angle, you miss a lot. And that's what's happening. Agreed. Um, You have to go out and speak to people. Uh, With with the AI now, you can actually go out and program it to take the opposite position, argue and find holes in my argument. What would someone with an opposing view take in terms of their position? I want you to throw um, 20 objections up against this hypothesis. Now, you can do that with the technology now. So you don't necessarily just have to go out and speak to people, although I would strongly advise you to do it, but go out being informed. The technology is there for free to enable you to do that if you choose to use it wisely. Arnold, we're wrapping up now. So tell me this, and what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to in terms of good content relating to the topics we've been discussing today? Yes, and that's not just because we are today on a podcast, but most of my knowledge and a lot of things start because I listen to something like 30, 40 different podcasts on a wide variety of topics. So not only you're like uh, you're interested in chess and then lead the thing about chess, that's fine. But also follow a podcast around AI, follow a podcast around the health. Follow a podcast around uh, history. Yeah, yeah, you have to you have to pay attention to history. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Dan Carling does a fantastic um, series of podcasts if you're uh, into this stuff. Uh, they go into enormous depth and detail about topics that are very, very uncomfortable and relevant to today. Yeah, but but also like I I just de- discovered it, it's a podcast called The Founders. It's about uh, entrepreneurial founders from history and what their lessons were and what they learned, and and it's incredible. And and that guy has just spitted everything out. Yeah, so it's like, but those resources are available. They're available for free. Just like your own podcast, but it's 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 like it's incredible. Yeah. You can learn about interesting people, about businesses, you can learn about books. Yeah. A lot of the books I read are based upon interview with authors on the podcast. Yeah? And at the same time, actually on my morning walk, I listen to a podcast. So I combine two things because people are like I have no time. I like, well, I walk. Yeah. When I bike to the supermarket to the to do my uh to get my food, I listen to a podcast. So it's like all of these things. When you, yeah, when I do vacuum cleaning in my house, which is not my favorite thing, I make it very worthwhile by listening to a podcast. And if you're at the gym, listening to a podcast is also yeah. So in addition to that, I would like to, to, to reference three books. One is called The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. Yes, very good book. The second one is called The Power of Different from Gail Saltz. And it describes all kinds of mental health illnesses, but more from a perspective of, of the symptoms rather than the DSM labels out of the mental health catalog. And it describes people even with schizophrenia or whatever, who are a professor at the university or successful composers or whatever. So the good thing is like, yeah, that's why it's called The Power of Different is you, you can do things, uh, well, with a handicap would also be an advantage. Yeah? The last one um, is called Krivda. It's a book from Anna Reitort, and it describes how already through the ages, certain forces where we are being conditioned and how it works on all levels. And once you see that and understand that, you can protect yourself and you you see how a lot of things are really driving in a certain direction. And you can also understand why a lot of the things you think that it's like, oh, it's my fault, something wrong. It's like, maybe it's not your fault. It's maybe the system drives things in a certain direction. How do you spell Krivda? K-R-I-V-V-D-A. Uh, right, so it's an acronym. Is it? No, it's it's Russian for deceit. Aha, uh-huh. right. Okay. Interesting. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? Well, I got my website, www.brainathletes.club. Brainathletes.club. Yes. And my email is arnold at brainathletes.club. I'm on LinkedIn. Arnold Bakers, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Arnold Bakers. Arnold Bakers, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kapke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Leave us a review. Honest, one star, three star, five stars, really don't care. Just want uh, the feedback. 
if you want to get hold of Arnold, please do. He's uh, a coach and uh, he takes on uh, private clients. And if you want to get hold of me, the link is in the blurb. I'm particularly looking for principled sellers who are having to manage the uh, walking the tightrope between their values, doing what's right for their customer, and also keeping their job, their bosses happy and fitting in and succeeding. So if that describes you, then do get in touch. We can have a 15-minute chat, no charge, no pressure. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.